Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Njani. And today, we're going to talk about whether Agile is just old-fashioned engineering. <laughs> that should be a fun one. I agree. So, so Luca, you uh, you had proposed this topic, and uh, and I, I thought it sounded pretty interesting. So, tell me what you uh, what you think, kind of the uh, whether whether there's a, a straw man involved, or um, I don't know that people are, are drawing too too big a dichotomy. What's what's the issue at play here? Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting to me, and I I suppose this is a fitting episode, seeing as this is the. 20th anniversary of the Agile Manifesto. And, you know, agility in, in that sense can't be called new anymore anyway. Like it's it's already 20 years old. But my claim is that it's probably a thousand years old or something. <laughs> because, and, and this is my my opinion, Agile, the, the Agile method is just good, old-fashioned, proper engineering. You know, I have a mechanical engineering degree, and, and this is essentially what they taught us um, in engineering school, like at university. Well, okay, so so in so what do you mean exactly by that? So the the cycle of uh, prototyping something, testing it, and refining it. I completely agree that cycle exists in any engineering effort, uh, any 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 engineering effort of any non-trivial complexity. Mm-hmm. So is so is, is that the entirety of what's captured by the Agile Manifesto? I mean, the Agile Manifesto was a reaction to something. There was a reason, you know this these this group of people gathered and you know complained about the way things were being done at that time and wrote this manifesto was kind of a bold statement in reaction to that. Had engineering drifted away from its roots in a way prior to this in the in the in the maybe the decades leading up to. The Agile Manifesto being written, yeah, you know, there was a reason they wrote it. They were rebelling against something. So what? What was it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, there was this this thing termed the software crisis, which predated actually the Agile Manifesto by quite a bit. But so the observation was that as software grew in complexity, and we're talking about the seventies and eighties here. Um, Projects were starting to run worse and worse over budget, over time. The whole thing just felt very inefficient and heavyweight. Um, and I suppose this is what the, the the Agile Manifesto was really trying to rebel against, this over-reliance on processes and tools and, uh, you know, every, doing everything by the literal book. Right. Yeah. Lo- looking at the manifesto for agile software development, um, you know, the thing, the, 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 the original statements are saying, you know, we value these things on the left more than the values on, on the right. And, and the, the things on the right were all reactions of an industry, a, 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 a young industry trying to get a handle on complexity. And like you said, processes and tools, comprehensive documentation, contract negotiation, following a plan, the industry came to rely on these things too much. And so, so, so is, are those a part of old fashioned engineering or were those simply kind of a, a, a poor Avenue explored by this young industry of software engineering and, and the, the other, you know, older forms of engineering, mechanical engineering say didn't suffer from those problems quite as much. 
I think they, I think they suffered suffered from them as much. Like I'm an aeronautical engineer, and so if you're familiar with aeronautical engineering, the cycle time for aircraft projects is something like ten years or so. On the other hand, you had outfits like Lockheed Skunk Works, you know, the the sort of special super secret project arm of the aircraft manufacturer Lockheed, who were able to build those deemed impossible aircraft, like the SR-71, to this day, the fastest aircraft, or the F-117, the famous stealth fighter. Um, They were able to not just build them in the first place, but actually build them within like 18 months, 18 months from, you know, start of the project to first flight, which is just incredible it's totally crazy and the um the name escapes me you had the the boss of lockheed skunkworks at the time said i must not have more than 150 people in my organization or i cannot sustain this speed interesting i i'm uh kelly uh, i'm blanking on yeah, his name too but yeah exactly yeah anyway so i think this whole you know giant paperwork machine is just a poor stand-in for communication, for people talking to one another. And this is what what I think uh, the Agilists were rebelling against this. You know, instead of writing reams and reams of paper, let's just go to the other guy and talk to to them and figure out what it is they actually need and want. Right. And I think, and and I, I guess that on projects that I've been a part of, even that, you know, I, so I've, in my experience, uh, in, in my engineering career, I've been a part of very few organizations that considered themselves agile. And most when you, you know, when you look at the development plan for some product, it, it's a very typical waterfall development plan. But in reality, <laughs> it doesn't, it's not actually waterfall because uh, there, there is a lot of change that occurs during the development process. It's just not recognized or, or dealt with in a first class way. It's kind of shoehorned into this waterfall development process. And this is very common in medical devices. Um, I think this perception in the industry is changing, but there has been this long perception that the one true development model recognized by the FDA is the waterfall model. That's not the case. The FDA has kind of made it very clear that that's not the case, but um, that that perception is improving, but it still exists. And, but, you know, so you would have these like certain phase reviews in your project and pe- like things would change in there anyway, because that's just the nature of the beast. Like as you, as you build prototypes and get them into the hands of users, and even as you build the actual you know, pre-production devices, you find major problems and have to go back and do a big redesign. And that change occurs whether you build it into your into your process as kind of a first class thing or not. And so what I've what what typically I see is like I said, the this agile this sort of you know bastardized agile process shoehorned into a waterfall development plan. Um and so one of the notes you made before this episode was waterfall is an illusion. And I think this this speaks to that. Is that your experience as well? Exactly. Like who in their right mind would follow a literal waterfall process that has no 
opportunity for feedback at all. In fact, that you said that you build a prototype. Why do you build it if you're not going to listen to the feedback from this, you know, trying out this prototype? Right. Um, wh why would you test if you don't have a way to make use of this feedback that you gather through testing? So in other words, everybody, and very reasonably so, does use feedback. Um, so this this waterfall model that, that is used sometimes in documentation or that Agilists famously use as sort of a uh, strawman, uh, terrible process just doesn't exist. And nobody in their right mind has ever done it this way. I, I, I think it would, it would almost create physical pain for somebody to not, to, to not use feedback that they can see with their own eyes. So what, so again, kind of going back to the agile manifesto and, and the, the group of people who originally got together and wrote it, were they on, you know, they, they were seeing something in the industry. So was it, say, large government contracts where, again, you know, a year was spent up front detailing the requirements to the nth degree. And then by the time those requirements were implemented two years later, they were out of date. I have a feeling that was quite common. I, I actually, you know, I I haven't been around this industry that long to actually, you know, like you said, the Agile Manifesto itself is 20 years old, which was around the time I, I graduated college. You know, I've never actually participated in a program like that, say, that was common in the 90s. So it sounds like that was done, and it was just as painful as you just described. And this is what the Agile Manifesto was reacting against. Yeah, exactly. So um, I've been part of several avionics projects. And so, you know, being part of the aircraft industry and, in fact, defense, which is even more conservative – that was that was just a really terrible, slow-moving, almost waterfall process. They they tried their hardest to make it a waterfall, but they couldn't pull it off. They still had some feedback somewhere in there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, you know, it, it might take years for us to actually work on a bug report. Wow. Exactly. Wow. And it, it was just as painful and costly and annoying as it sounds like. You couldn't even talk to the person who wrote the bug report because they had long left the company. Um, so, and I think this is the situation that a lot of the the um, signers of this Agile Manifesto found themselves in, quite a few of which, interestingly, were also uh, embedded systems people. Mm -hmm. I don't, I can't remember how many of them, but, but like if you take James Grenning, who famously wrote an excellent book on... TDD in the embedded context, um, you know, there's there's a lot of people from the embedded industry, which is why I find it a bit ironic that uh, Agile is not as common in embedded as I would have hoped or liked. Right, right. I think maybe for me, the the way to not resolve the contradiction, but to to recognize that, you know, throughout throughout the course of of engineering history, you know, this cycle of prototype test refine, that cycle has existed and has been done even on major, major development projects in the 90s that were, you know, under this waterfall process. Maybe what what the the problem was is that uh, that feedback happens only in, in an engineering context, and even then not nearly as fast as it should. But it doesn't happen up at the requirements level at the program level of the what are you trying to build level. 
maybe maybe it's still too common for that to be overly described prescribed excuse me um in a requirements phase and then yes when you're actually when engineers are actually working to implement those requirements they prototype test refine and they discover problems that, but they're still trying to achieve the same written requirements and and it's like what i said where in a in a typical process that I've seen, they're still going back and modifying the requirements. It's just not really done in kind of a first class way. Um, maybe that's the real that's the real issue. That's where an organization can actually make a fundamental change to their process is just recognizing that not just the implementation, but the requirements themselves need to be iterated on and should not be fully specified up front. You should get pretty close. And then start building and and go as you know get as far along that process of developing and getting feedback from end users, and that's that then goes back and informs the requirements of the project itself and the schedule and everything about the the program plan. That's exactly right, um, and it's not like this was some kind of a dirty secret of requirements engineering. Like if you read proper requirements engineering literature, you will find that things like, oh, there is this rule of thumb that we have a change rate of 10% of the requirements per month. In other words, after a year, nothing is as it was before. <laughs> and th this is not agile. This is good, old-fashioned, stodgy requirements engineering. Uh, exactly as you say, <laughs> why, why not grab the bull by the horns and, and just accept that, yes, you will never know as little as you don't now you would be a fool not to adapt your plans as you learn more. And you should just make that an explicit component of the way you work. And, you know, if, if you look at the project plans of the Apollo space program, that was an agile program. Of course, nobody used the term at the time. But the, the only thing that was sort of fixed about it was the things that were laid out by President Kennedy in his famous speech man on the moon, and safely back to Earth, end of decade. Everything else was up for grabs. Right. Exactly. And they, they built the project plan in such a way that they could maximize learning and so that they could change course if they needed to very quickly. Like even, even during a mission, uh, I don't know, I, I, I remember they tried to do an EVA and then the hatch didn't open or something like that. And so they figured out, okay, what else? Oh, no, rather they had already figured out. What else can we do that maximizes learning for the next mission after that so that we get as close to landing on the moon as quickly as we can? Right. They, you know, the, the really bad way to do it, which would never work in such a complex endeavor, is to just plan the moon mission and build all the stuff all at once. And, you know, the... Like you said, this was this was stodgy aerospace engineering in the '60s, but but in a you know in many ways it was you know one of the most complex, fastest rate endeavors, and they had to do it in an incremental, iterative fashion. Yeah, and, and this was not software that's you know easy to change, easy to prototype. This was a bloody like rocket. So I, I remember something you brought up during our uh, our last episode about your five minute bridge prototype, uh, and I really liked that as a metaphor. So so repeat that for the audience and 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 talk about how 
that's that could be a, a useful metaphor to think about uh, when we're doing embedded systems development you know that's working with hardware and software yeah so so the argument that i always take is that um the only difference between software and, and other kinds of engineering is that pro software prototypes are essentially free and instantaneous you know you just recompile and there's a new prototype. And I guarantee you, if civil engineers could build free prototype bridges in five minutes and then drive a thousand prototype trucks over them and see if they fall over, they would do it that way. But unfortunately, they, they can't. So they need to do all kinds of awkward things, simulate, calculate, and, and try to find stand-ins for the thing they can't do, which is to build a prototype and see if it holds up. But that's really the the only the only difference, right? And I think so for embedded systems development, you know, I I think that people have have made allowances for the fact that hardware iteration times are slower, or or maybe not made allowances. Maybe maybe I'm arguing that they haven't made enough allowances for that. That essentially um, the effort to invest in in simulation, in running unit tests on the host, in essentially divorcing the software development side as much as possible and practical from the hardware side is one of the keys to just removing that level of friction and making the allowing your software iteration time to truly drop. And it's, you know, it's it's as it's as much like Every test shouldn't be you have to wait the 30 seconds for your code to compile, cross compile, and then flash onto the target. Like it depends on what particular, you know, embedded development setup you have. You know, some, I have two boards next to me. One, one is this huge thing running a display and it takes 30 seconds to, or probably actually closer to 60 seconds to flash and actually start debugging. And another one takes four seconds. Guess which one I like working on more. Um, but even in the larger sense of taking the time to develop simulators for, uh, for your platform so that your code can run on the host against the simulators and you don't have to worry about the hardware at all. I think just, and, and I think to your point that you've made earlier in the, in this podcast as well, in a previous episode of upping the hardware iteration time, um, or not, uh, sorry, uh, uh, increasing the hardware iteration frequency so that you are naturally doing faster hardware iterations, um, and, looking at that as a value stream that you can um, both minimize the friction of a hardware iteration and also uh, just have a fixed cadence, I think is, is another way to try to tackle that fundamental problem where software is easier to prototype than hardware or easier to iterate on than hardware. Exactly. And the, the other thing that you should really actively try to, to aim for is, is autonomy of, the different teams, like you might have a software team that can iterate faster and they should be able to do that unimpeded by whatever the hardware is doing. And the hardware should be iterating in their slower cycles, um, unimpeded by whatever the hell it is that software is doing. Um, and if, if you force them both to work in lockstep, that's when you really get a lot of friction and when you slow things down. If you l allow every part of your development to go at its own individual maximum speed, that's when, you know, when, when you get really fast and not just in the sense of getting a product out the door quickly, but also getting a good product out the door quickly because you can iterate, you can learn, you can interact with your 
customers, your users, your stakeholders, the FDI, FDA, um, much more quickly and much more deeply, and it would just benefit essentially every aspect of your product. Right, but that that is easier said than done. I mean, there are it's it's probably outside the scope of this episode, but there's there's specific, you know, software techniques that you can employ that make that easier. I mean, it's one thing to say software just iterate, don't worry about hardware, but but you know, the fact of the matter is that the you know in embedded systems development, the software directly interacts with the hardware. Um, so I think there it, it takes effort and investment to and specific techniques to make that actually feasible in, in the real world. Yeah, but on the other hand, this is true. Uh, on, on one hand, this is true. But on the other hand, it's equally true for all other kinds of organizations. Like if I'm thinking of, of a random company, and, and maybe they have a mainframe somewhere in the basement that runs their, their, um, their manufacturing processes, and they have a web shop that iterates very quickly and, and, you know, in a very modern web style. And they have to integrate those as well. They have very different groups that live in very different worlds, that have very different cycle times, that live on very different hardware. And they need to figure out as well how how to deal with that. And, and yes, it's hard for them as well. So I don't think Embedded is an exception in that sense. Everybody has teams that have a certain impedance mismatch not just in terms of technology, but in terms of worlds they live in. And they need to figure out how to do that. And it's hard for everybody, but it's also, you know, doable for everybody. It can't be an excuse to not try and do it. Oh, sure. Sure. So I, so I, maybe to give a preview of, of a future episode. Uh, so what I'm, what I'm thinking of in terms of things that the software team can do to make it easier uh, to develop software while hardware is changing underneath them is just basically cr- create compatibility layers or interface layers where their low-level drivers will change with the as the hardware changes. But there's a certain interface that that hi- that is well defined that hides the low-level details. And this is exactly the what you know companies developing large web applications have to do when teams work to each other is is they draw hard interfaces. And they work very hard to keep those interfaces static. And they, they can change, but they try not to change often. And then essentially, you your team iterates and codes to that interface. And I guess in embedded systems engineering, it was very typical for that interface to literally be the hardware. And, and if the hardware changes, like, you know that interface change is coming. And so you that's where the friction is introduced. Like, the hardware people are making a change and it's we're not going to have the new boards for five weeks. So I guess I can't really do any work. You adding your own interface at one level above that, um, above the driver level in the software is a way to resolve that contradiction and, and, and improve that situation where now it's only the low level drivers that change. And everyone knows this in theory, but I haven't seen as many organizations that I'd like to see in the medical devices really practice that really have a solid hardware abstraction layer that actually is portable across projects and and really does that job interesting why do you think that is i it's it's a it's a difficult thing to do and i will okay it's not just that it's difficult people do difficult things it's that it doesn't seem worth it for like any micro situation you find yourself in, you typically kind of locally optimize and you're saying, I just need to get this one product out that like my, the, 
the executive team and management is breathing down my neck and I just got to get this one product out the door and then I'll have time to do it. And that never investing the effort to properly abstract things and properly architect things to support, you know, the long-term efforts of the company that that takes management support to give engineering the time to do that. It takes skill on the part of the engineers to do it properly and efficiently. And and so I guess basically if there's not support from management to invest in those kind of long-term efforts, if they're focused on the short term, then it's really hard at the engineering level to find time or make time or, or or hide in there time to do that proper abstraction. What do you think? I actually think, um, so first of all, I don't think it actually takes a lot of time. Yes, you know, it's it's work that you have to do and it doesn't come for free. But same as with unit tests, for instance, the time you invest, you get back, you know, tenfold through ease of development, ease of debugging, all of these things. So I think I think it's almost a habit. Like you're so used to working in resource constrained environments and so many uh, so many embedded engineers originally came from other disciplines and maybe uh, never quite found the time to to really learn how to do these kinds of things. And so they're just not done without any any good reason and and maybe maybe one human reason is also behind it which is that you know if you want to build those interfaces you need to talk to the other guy you need to communicate and that is just something that is much harder than hiding behind your terminal and i'm not even talking about the stereotypical um you know nerdy engineer who doesn't know how to talk to other people most of the good engineers i know or all of the good engineers i know are excellent communicators but it's fundamentally people are just much harder than technology. And so some some people might think that, you know, I'd rather write some more C that's somehow less complicated. I like it. I like it. Uh all right. We've we've gotten away a little bit from our or maybe not gotten away, but but our, our topic over this episode has evolved from, you know, our, originally we said it's about agile is old fashioned engineering. And I don't know, like, can we can we find a way to tie this together? So we've talked about, you know, developing good interfaces that allow, you know, these teams that that work at different rates to be able to iterate on their own schedule that's appropriate to them and still not step on each other's toes too much. How do we how do we tie that back into our overall topic here? Well, I'm not even sure it's necessary to tie it back into the topic insofar as it really is the topic. You know, the point is engineering is what happens when engineers talk to one another and the differential equations they solve and the C++ they write and and all the other things are just side effect of that communication that took place or didn't take place as as the case may be. Um, And this is exactly why I say Agile is just good old fashioned engineering. It's a way of the right people talking to one another at the right time about the right things. And there we are. And, and that takes us back to that example of, of Lockheed Skunk Works, um, uh, where this guy, Kelly, famously said, you know, if uh, I if the, the engineer who draws a certain part throws the pencil, it needs to hit the turner in the head who, who actually builds it. Only then can we build those crazy planes we build. Right, right. Kelly Johnson is his name. That just now I remember. Ah, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> All right. I think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up. So thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. I'm Luke and Gianni. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.